You're listening to the Fund the People podcast. I'm your host, Rusty Stahl. On this show, we serve up a healthy, nutritious alternative to the nonprofit starvation cycle. If you work as a funder, a nonprofit, or intermediary, we'll help you invest in America's nonprofit workforce to drive equity, effectiveness, and endurance in our nonprofit and social justice community. So let's get going. That's right, that's right, Mr. Mayor, you hearing us? The critical work of human services nonprofits is undermined by the inadequate government contracts. We are fighting to end government-sanctioned poverty wages for human service workers. Please, just pay so we can work to end the cycle of homelessness. Why are we here again? Please support frontline workers. We are a collective. We are a force to be reckoned with. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Fund the People podcast. I'm honored today to have Michelle Jackson with us. Michelle was appointed Executive Director of the Human Services Council in May of 2020 and previously served for many years as the Deputy Executive Director and the Deputy Director. Human Services Council advocates for the nonprofit human services organizations that provide critical services for New Yorkers. And uh, we're really happy to have you on the show today, Michelle. Thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. Tell us briefly about yourself and where you're coming from. As you mentioned, I took over as the head of the Human Services Council in 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic, um, but have been at HSC for most of my professional career. Um, for 15 years, I started as a policy analyst there and really thought it would be a starter job <laughs> out of law school. I knew I wanted to do like policy and legislative advocacy. And I really love the organization and the organizations that we work with. So HSC, we represent about 170 human service nonprofits in New York City and the surrounding areas. And we do advocacy on their behalf at the city and state level in New York uh, about issues that really impact the way that they work with government and their ability to deliver quality services in communities. And those organizations range from childcare centers to senior services and everything in between. And they're really doing incredible transformative work, often in spite (laughs) of the obstacles that they face. Yeah, I mean, such an important set of institutions that go back. Some of them go back hundreds of years in in New York City. Yeah, some of them are celebrating like their 200th anniversary and like, yeah, just really huge institutions in New York who have been here since, honestly, since New York was settled. There's some of their history in the Lower East Side and Queens. I mean, it's really incredible. Wow. And so you all have been doing... I think, incredible work, you in particular and the institution and your members of the Human Services Council, all those organizations you were just talking about, have been doing really exemplary work, changing the relationship between um, these nonprofit human services institutions and the government. So um, before we kind of tell that story today, give us your big message. What is your message for government? and for private funders as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, so this is a New York story. um, And so I always think it's important to start out, you know, knowing that you have a national audience, you know, in New York, in the city and state, government is really out of the business of doing human services. 
they contracted out to the tune of almost $16 billion between the city and state to mostly not-for-profits who do this work, which is to me the right perspective, the right way to do this because nonprofits can combine private resources like donors, philanthropy with you know government dollars at the federal, state, and city level. And they can be innovative and creative and really combine and get the best use out of our resources. So in New York, and I think that's true in many other places, government really is the predominant funder of human services. And while that money is welcome, I think it's really the government relies on nonprofits and has underfunded them to a real crisis level. And so I think our overarching message at the Human Services Council is nonprofits should be doing transformative work and leading the charge to end poverty and lift up communities. And they do that work in spite (laughs) of government in many cases. The system for nonprofits was really designed to eliminate the worst side effects of capitalism and white supremacy, not necessarily to solve those problems. And we see that in the way that government and sometimes foundations as well show up in funding. You know, they underfund contracts. They don't have the best metrics. They don't pay for quality staff and also rely on nonprofits every day. And so my message to government is, you know, definitely to do better. And my message to nonprofits is that we have to join together and push back against not just these funding practices, because that makes it seem like it's like a business relationship, but really against the inequities that are built into the system that keep people from really achieving the best they can out of these programs that are really critical to them. So a light message. A light message. (laughs) Well, it's fascinating. Thanks for offering the context of how social services are delivered in New York City and state on behalf of our elected governments by nonprofit organizations and workers. And I I just want to say that if folks want to hear more about that from a research and historic perspective in season one, episode five, we had on Dr. Lester Solomon, who talked about how Since the 1930s, the federal government, at least, has been doing that kind of outsourcing of services uh, through largely through nonprofits. So I think it's an important aspect of our sector that doesn't get talked about enough or understood enough and, and an aspect of government as well. Thank you for the light message to government. Do better and nonprofits unite. Now, you've had this incredible campaign, the Just Pay campaign, hashtag Just Pay. And if anyone finds any human services institution on social media that's a New York City one, you're likely to see that they've integrated the hashtag Just Pay into their um, social media presence. And um, before we talk about the campaign, I want to play a little sound from one of the two great videos that Human Services Council has put out. This one is actually a musical which was uh, shocking to me, a musical about the nonprofit sector that actually I think is really well done and, um, and very powerful. So let's hear a few uh, lines from that. This is kind of set in a, I guess, a food kitchen kind of setting. This is the state of the sector. This is the state of affairs. This is the state of the sector. This is your state now for anyone who cares. We provide services on behalf of the city and state, are funded at 70 cents on the dollar and paid late. But wait, do I get a loan or send another person home? Another service, another cost to make up for what we lost? And let's talk about safety. You down with PPE? Yeah, you know me. You down with PPE? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with PPE? Every Every last ED. If only that shit was free. 
I don't need a pep talk. I need you to walk my block. You care about equity? I'll save you the complexity. Just start here. It's been another hard year, praying for better days still, but still I'm here. It's a lot more good lines in there, but we'll leave it there. You want to say anything about the video, how it came to be, or how it was part of the campaign, or anything? Yeah, we, a number of years ago, and you can find them on our website, we worked with this great studio, Key Ideas Productions, to do a video on like nonprofit contracting that's been now referred to as the, the pizza video, where we kind of compared government contracting for nonprofits to running a pizza shop and how absurd it would be to run a business the way government asks nonprofits do. And since then, we, you know, we got a lot of attention for it, and, and the musical kind of carries on that legacy of we're trying to deliver the message in new and creative ways. I think the sector does incredible work, not just human services organizations, but the nonprofit sector. And we're not necessarily known for our sense of humor, um, for taking risks. And, you know, we're a little on the wonky side when we deliver our messages. And that was really something we were trying to like break away from. And when we think about the human services workforce, which I know you and I will talk way more about, we didn't want to do like another funny kind of sarcastic video. We really wanted to kind of demonstrate like the heroic nature of the work that they're doing. And so that was really the musical. And then it took on a life of its own, <laughs> became a much bigger production than we thought, um, including Kenita Miller, who you heard sing as, uh, was nominated for a Tony for her other work that she's done. So what's nice about New York is you can get really quality talent apparently. Um, and so, yeah, it was really like a love story to human services workers during the height of the pandemic. Yeah, it's very clearly right in the height of that pandemic, based on the the lines, uh, and it is it is beautifully performed. I mean, the singing and the dancing and the acting is really quite something. So that's just a part of the campaign. So tell us the story of the Just Pay campaign that the Human Service Council and your members have been running. How did it come to be? What's the problem it sought to address or seeks to address, and what's happened? Yeah. So historically. HSC has done workforce investment advocacy. Uh, government, as I said, is a predominant payer of and therefore setter of human services wages. And we often historically have done advocacy around COLAs, cost of living adjustments, so that government contracts will automatically pay you know, a 3%, 4% increase on contracts. As anyone who works in the private sector, you expect a raise every year. It can either be performance-based or it can just be a COLA based on inflation. And so while we've done that advocacy successfully and not unsuccessfully for you know 20 years, really even before the pandemic, our providers were really talking about the crisis in the workforce. As the minimum wage went up, which as it should and should continue to go up, we were losing workers to Starbucks and you know other places that could pay $15, $16, $17 an hour for work that didn't require a master's degree, for example, and maybe wasn't as stressful. You know, when we think of like home care workers who are doing some of the most valuable work you can imagine uh, for people who are homebound, they're not paid fairly. And that really is squarely on the shoulders of government who underpay on their contracts and providers have not been able to keep pace and kind of making up the difference. So even before the pandemic, we were really at a crisis point. And right before the pandemic, with the support of one of our foundations, the Clark Foundation, we brought a bunch of human service providers and coalitions up to Cooperstown, New York. And one of our members actually talked about we should have a just pay campaign. And we had a laundry list of every issue under the sun from late contracting to workforce. And the idea was like, just pay us. 
and also just pay in an equitable way. And then the pandemic happened and that really crystallized the essential nature of human services workers. You know, we were on the front lines. We weren't the ones who were getting cheered at that seven o'clock clap, (laughs) but certainly were essential. They were out and we had workers who lost their lives. I'm sure that's true of, of human service organizations across the country. You can't shut down home delivered meals, home care, homeless shelters during the pandemic. And they were not rewarded for that work. They're overwhelmingly women. They're overwhelmingly people of color. And they're the least paid workers in the city. In New York, human services workers overall are the lowest paid workers besides restaurant workers. So really low on the wage scale for the work that they're doing. And so that really crystallized for us. You know, the sector can't continue the way that it has been. And government needs to do better. We knew that we needed to pull the campaign together around just workforce issues. And so took what we learned before the pandemic around the convening of our providers and came out with the Just Pay campaign, which is really to, you know, our tagline is, and the government sanctioned poverty wages for human services workers and lift up in all the ways that we can at the city and state the need to make real investment in an essential and crucial workforce that isn't going anywhere. This will always be human-centered work. At least when I think of the future, I can't imagine it being automated. And so we need to invest in it appropriately. Yeah, I don't think robots are going to be doing this work and you can't offshore it either. You can't have people in sweatshops around the world doing human services. This is an essential workforce. So what have been the components of the campaign? So you had the the convening, Clark Foundation, a very good funder who cares about New York City. I'm glad they were involved. And so then what did the campaign do? I want you to share how you mobilized and united people in a way that's really different from what the sector usually does when we are advocating for ourselves, if we do. Yeah, I think first we had to come up with a clear set of asks and it had to be at the city and state because, you know, if you're a provider who's listening to this and you're like, you know, if you get a COLA or if you get an investment at the city, but you also have a state contract, you know, you have workers who are on both, you know, both. Like, so we really need to target the city and state together. So we came up with kind of three asks. One is around a wage floor. Like, don't pay any worker less than what was $21 on any human services contracts. We need automatic COLAs, cost of living adjustments, at the city and state. And then we also need a system to create better parity. In New York, at least, human service workers are paid on average 30% less than they would make for doing the same or similar job in government. And that's not including benefits, that's wages alone. So how do we get to this, like, parity question? So we had to have a clear set of, like, what are we fighting for? And I think that's the most important part of a campaign, because by just saying pay workers better... And so having a clear set of asks that can be legislative and budget advocacy. And then to your point, we mobilize differently. Like this isn't about a hundred or so nonprofit executives writing a letter, uh, having a meeting with our elected officials. We wanted to mobilize the human services workforce. I think the sector really underestimates the huge people power that we have at our disposal in terms of workers, volunteers, board members, program recipients. Like there's just hundreds of thousands of people that you could mobilize. And we bit off a very small piece of that in the first year of the campaign. We did two rallies at City Hall. Each had about 1,500 people. So 3,000 people turned out. That's huge for us, certainly bigger than anything we put together as a sector in New York. And because we were targeting workers, I think a lot of times, again, we tend to be a little wonky in what we're asking government for. And this was like pay workers better and hear from the workers themselves. I think that was the other component of our campaign is at both rallies, we did not have executives speak. You know, we had elected officials and we had workers tell their stories. Um, so we're, this is the Just Pay campaign is really striving for and will continue to strive for putting the worker voice forward 
and centering them because this is not just a budget advocacy campaign. This is an equity campaign. This is about people of color and women who are purposely paid less than they're worth systemically. And we want to talk about gender equity and, you know, wage, the ending the wage gap. We want to talk about lifting up communities of color, like that's workforce. So really important for us to center that as not just like a, you know, we need money in the budget, but for elected officials who are really centering racial equity and gender justice, this is their campaign. This is how you move the ball forward in a way that you control the purse strings um, to make it happen. And so by making that very crystal clear and organizing at a community level and not just kind of the high level advocacy that nonprofits tend to do, speaking very broadly, makes a big difference. And so that was one of the things we really wanted to push for. So let's hear a little sound from these rallies. We'll start with the MC, Maria Lazardo, who is an executive director of Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation and a board member of Human Services Council. What do we want, people? When do we want it? What do we want? When do we want it? I have a few more shout outs. And these are the organizations that made it happen today and made sure that we had a lot of people out here. Because guess what? This is the first and biggest action we've had in the last two years. And we are here today to let the city know that we want just pay, that we deserve just pay, that the human services sector is essential. And guess what? Before COVID, we were essential. During COVID, we are essential. It has been our workforce that has been out there running food pantries so New Yorkers can have something to eat. It has been our workforce that has been providing child care so essential workers and first responders could go to work. It is our workforce that has been providing shelter services to the homeless and victims of domestic violence. It is our workforce that has delivered meals to seniors and called them to make sure that they were not isolated and hungry. Guess what? It is this sector that will be part of the recovery and essential to the recovery of New York City and New York State. And we deserve just pay. So... Why did you need two rallies and and what happened after the first rally? Yeah, well, I think first, one of the important things, and Maria Lazardo was such an incredible MC for us representing, you know, her, her community and the workers that she supports at her organization was that energy, right? I mean, and Maria probably nailed it more than anyone else could. Um, we need, we wanted to have a kickoff rally and make sure both the city and state um, knew that, you know, this campaign was here. We were able to engage the city council coming out of the pandemic, you know, 1500 people in one space outside safely was, you know, a real like signal to government that we were going to act differently and that this wouldn't just be a strongly worded letter that we were coming out and, you know, united our workers in this ask. And so a lot of it was about, you know, launching the rally we did in March was about launching the campaign, having workers show up, be part of that community. So it's kind of that community building as well as a signal to, to government that this campaign was serious and that we were engaged and then the second rally we did in May because the preliminary budget or the executive budget at the city did not include our ask uh, <laughs> of, a, of a cost of living adjustment. So we were like, okay, we'll do it again. We'll show up with even more people, more city council members, great speakers, and 
you know, make sure that the, that our budget ask is clear. And I think also, you know, so that was kind of why we did it from a local advocacy standpoint. But I think in terms of movement building, we also, it was really important for us to show that we're not a one trick pony, right? Like this wasn't, we're going to show up once we spent a year getting all these people in one place and like, see what we did. It was like, we'll keep coming back and we'll turn out more people because this is a people centered campaign. So in that sense, you know, we're not going to continue to do those rallies at that level because we need to turn to other types of advocacy, but it was also important. And so, you know, for people who are thinking about doing this too, doing one rally, showing people that's important, but we really wanted to demonstrate we'll keep coming back until we get what we want. Amazing. And you didn't settle when you didn't get the ask, you came back. You know, one thing you said to me in, in our preparation call was that a lot of the city council had been elected during the pandemic and so they hadn't themselves had rallies and they hadn't seen rallies like this Uh, so it was even more prominent i guess or effective so that was some interesting context i thought and and you actually had city council members come out and speak at the rally how many city council members came out and how'd you how'd you do that (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) so yeah i mean i definitely think an advocacy tip in general is you know using the resources that you have to the best of your ability and you know for the sector 1500 people is incredible right at least in in the local new york community um yeah and not just people but social workers and the people who work in our organizations it wasn't just a hey come out and support us anybody it was the workforce of the organizations showing up Exactly. Yes. This was, you know, workers who were making it happen for the day and moving things around to like come out and support this campaign and demonstrate how important it was to them. And I think for the city council, first, definitely coming out of the pandemic, there weren't a lot of spaces where you could get in front of that many people. So we certainly use that to our advantage, of course. And then, you know, this council in New York City is newly elected, biggest cohort of people of color. Um, of women, which is really incredible to see. And so I think there's some new energy. And, you know, we've long had champions in in the city council, but it's a different council. And they were really supportive from day one of the campaign. And we asked each, you know, there's a number of caucuses in the New York City Council, you know, Progressive Caucus, Black, Latino, Asian. And so, you know, we really asked them, the Women's Caucus, to really send representatives. So all of the caucuses came and spoke, you know, how does someone come and speak? And between the two rallies, we had about half of the council turn out and either speak or just come to support, which was also really nice to, you know, they didn't all have to have a speaking role to really show up and demonstrate that they were in support of the human services sector. And I think especially in New York City, this council has more people who come out of the sector. So we actually have some council members whose previous jobs were working in nonprofits. And so they certainly understand our issues on a deep and meaningful level because they've dealt with it firsthand. Yeah. On that note, let's hear from one of them. This is city council member from the Bronx, Althea Stevens, who is, as you said, a former human services worker at a settlement house. Listen, family, we here again. We was here not too long ago. And we demanded and we said what we wanted, but it wasn't in the executive budget. But now we're here again to say it again. And I'm here to say that I'm fighting from the inside. I've worked in human services for over 20 years, serving our families, serving our children. We can't talk about having a safe city when we're not paying people what they deserve. We can't talk about anything unless we are making sure that we are able to feed our families. We can't talk about anything if we can't pay rent. That is what we are fighting for. This is about our dignity. This is about our pride. This is about paying us what we are worth. You are worth what we're asking for. 
is a moral contract. It identifies what we believe is important in our society. And what is important in our society is our people. You guys are on the front line. When the COVID hit, you were essential because we needed you. But I'm not here to, I'm here to tell y'all, I'm not leaving y'all, we still need you. You're still essential. You guys are embarking on one of the biggest summers ever, serving over 100,000 students of SIP and 100,000 students in summer camp. But we're not paying you, it's unacceptable. So we're gonna continue to fight. When I say just, you say pay. Just, 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 just. We got this and keep fighting. We're gonna keep it till we get it. And next, we will hear from Akeisha McGilvery, Housing Specialist at Urban Resource Institute. Let's go, let's go! As a college graduate with two degrees, working towards my third, I am forced to work two jobs in order to maintain my cost of living. Not to mention owing large amounts in student loans and credit card debt, all as a means of survival. We call for your help. For, all, for an increase in New York City contracts for human service workers. Only New York City can increase these contracts. Mayor Adams, we are calling for your help. We need help. We social service workers are essential. We were essential enough when you had no one to go outside to do the work. So keep reminding yourselves that we are always going to be essential. You will always need us. Because on holidays, when you are laid up with your family opening Christmas gifts, enjoying the holiday with your family, we are there with our family, which is the homeless services population, trying to ensure that they feel loved and secure. All right, so that was obviously from the second rally. Oh man, you had some amazing speakers and leaders there. Okay, so you're fighting with city council, the mayor, and the governor on, on like, it's like a three-front uh, situation. You didn't get what you wanted in the budget the first time after the first rally. So then what happens, I want people to understand, you already said why state and city were important, but what happened with the state? What happened with the city? Yeah, so we were really, you know, at the state level, we got $500 million for a cost of living adjustment, a 5.4% increase um, in the state budget without doing a rally. Uh, actually, you know, Governor Hochul in her real first budget as, as governor uh, included the COLA for the first time in 12 years. So a real breakaway from her predecessors. And uh, so that's $500 million that's going out to nonprofit workers across the state in a 5.4% increase. And then at the city, as a result of that rally and support from the city council um, and inside the administration, we were able to get $60 million in what's called a workforce investment. Um, and so we went from zero to 60 as direct result of that rally and the advocacy. So overall in our first year of the campaign, and I will say we have a lot more to do and getting money from government, even when they promise it, there's some hiccups in the process, of course, but we were able to get $560 million in workforce investments in the first year of the campaign. Wow. So what are some of the lessons you and your colleagues have learned from both how you organized this and the results you got and the hiccups along the way? Well, I'll start with a hiccup. You know, we knew this going in is, you know, even when you get money allocated and it doesn't have to be for workforce, it can be for anything. We all know this. it goes slowly and there's a lot of procedural hurdles and new paperwork and confusion. And we certainly are experiencing that, you know, the COLA at the state left out some important programs. 
the city did not do a COLA. They're doing what's called a workforce investment. It took them a long time to get the money you know, out to providers, and it's still trying to get it out. And while we, when I say we as advocates, are familiar with that process, one of the biggest things I would learn, which is why I'm leading with this, is we involved workers. And so therefore we need to talk to workers and tell them what's going on. You know, so of course we passed the budget. We're like, we're going home for the summer and the workers are waiting for their money, right? They want to know the fruits of their labor of their hard work. And so I would say to anyone running a campaign, when you involve community, you need to make sure that you're communicating with them. And we have been, and understandably they're frustrated with the government process. And, you know, we're doing trainings um, going forward around making sure they understand more about like how long it takes for this money to go out and things like that. But we involved workers, and so I would say it wasn't just a hiccup, but we knew this going in was you have to prepare and educate and stay in contact with the people that are advocating with you. So we have a great listserv of all the workers who come to the rally. We make sure we send them regular updates. But come September 1st, people were like, where's the money? We're like, oh, it takes like six months to come out. And I was like, oh, no, they don't. that's not something they're familiar with. And so we're responsible for those next steps. And so I think that's definitely a lesson learned and something to make sure you center when you, you don't just bring everyone, have them show up as warm bodies and send them home and keep moving. You really need to keep them engaged and keep them informed. That, you know, is definitely a lesson learned from the work that we did in our first year. And we have really great staff who are doing that community outreach, which is important. I think the bigger lesson is that as a sector, we have to take some risks and we need to center the people who are doing this work in our efforts. I think a lot of times we speaking for HSC, it can get bogged down in like indirect cost rates and, you know, program metrics and late payments. And these are all huge issues. But at the end of the day, like we are a people-centered industry and we are successful because of the people who we serve and the people who work for us. Um, And so that's where we should be centering our advocacy. And then I think the second thing that I'm really proud of about this campaign is that it's about equity and being transformative and taking risks. We didn't just do our typical write an angry letter, get a meeting with the mayor, cut a deal. It was really about movement building for the sector and building our own risk tolerance and our ability. Like we did that first rally and we weren't hundred percent sure how many people were going to show up. And we're like, we're going to do this on behalf of the people that need us um, in those communities. And if it doesn't work out, oh, well, we'll figure something else out. And I think the sector, you know, should take more risks and be a little bit bolder in the advocacy that we do. How did doing these rallies and this sort of in-your-face approach in that video, you know, there's some cursing, which is fine, but it's not how we usually do our polite advocacy with our elected officials. So how has it impacted the relationships that HSC has with these, you know, city council members, the the mayor's office? I think it'll be interesting for people to hear who might be scared of being more bold. Yeah. I mean, I think so taking a step back as kind of just an advocate who's done this for a while, I think first you have to assess your local government and elected officials. We learned this is not in any way a secret. Mayor de Blasio, our previous mayor and Governor Cuomo did not get along. So the best way to get something done was to ask the other one to do it, right? Like hit them against each other. They de Blasio is leading here and suddenly Cuomo would have an announcement. I don't think I'm saying anything that anyone who's read more than one article (laughs) about New York politics would be surprised about. So it's kind of knowing your elected officials, like what are the triggers? Do they like press? Do they like praise? Do they respond to a little bit of shame? You know, what is the magic mix? I think that's always an important starting point. And, you know, for us, we did have new electeds, not just city council and mayor, but we had a new governor. And so we were learning a little bit of that. And so we did take some risks. And I think for me, even listening to the rally clips you play, I get like emotional again, because like Maria really captured what we were trying to do, which is like, we're trying to galvanize the sector to be 
proud of themselves and to fight for themselves. And that's the most important thing. And like, we don't respond to like C-SPAN levels of like testimony and like procedure. People want to feel like seen and heard. And that's what this campaign is going to do. And so, you know, we have our just effing pay, you know, masks and, you know, part of the video, (laughs) if you watch the musical, that's how it ends. And it's like, that's because that's how rude people are. You know, we want to have a sense of humor. We want to laugh at, you know, when there's trials and tribulations, you have a sense of humor. You're sarcastic. It's not just all like, you know, dry language. And so we're building a movement for people. So it should be of people. I think that's first and foremost, the important thing. And we want to also have fun in our work. I want to have fun. <laughs> and so I'm doing this work for to be a change agent, but also because I enjoy it. And that's an important part of it. And so having some personality and you know, I have to say government has responded really well. The mayor's office and his team have been real partners. You know, we know we have to push to get what we want because everyone else is pushing too. So by pushing, and I really respect our government partners in this case, because they responded to pushing in an authentic way. They weren't just like, how dare you? It's like, we understand everybody in New York is asking you for something. And so we're going to ask for something too. And we want to push a little harder and push a little louder. And it was done in a really respectful way. And we got respect from our government partners. So I very value their role in appreciating why we do the advocacy that we're doing. You know, we had a lot of city council members show up. The governor was really supportive in our efforts and the mayor and his team were right there. You know, like they weren't part of the campaign, but they responded in the budget. And we have great partnerships with, with the mayor's office and the other work that we do. Yeah, I think you're right. Government people understand. They know that they're being pushed in various directions. And if you don't speak up, you're not part of that. You're not at the table. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorites say, like, yeah, if you're not at the table, you're on the table. People are lobbying. People are doing fundraisers. Individuals and other types of institutions have resources that nonprofits don't have. And, you know, as 501c3s, we can't do campaign donations. We can't endorse candidates. And so what we have are people and we have our voice and we need to use it. And you can do it in ways that are funny, that are a little, you know, aggressive or, you know, use a couple swear words, hold our government partners accountable, and you can still do it in a respectful way. And I think that's something that the sector should really embrace and realize that you have to do this advocacy, because if you just stay quiet and say we do good work, then you're on the table for sure. And you all engage some, aside from the folks who helped produce the videos, you, you worked with some PR or policy consultants? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we use, um, we have a really great Moonshot Strategies is a really great political consulting firm and reseller communications is a PR firm. And I think that's also something the sector should really think about. And I know everyone has limited resources. So I, you know, if you're listening and you roll your eyes because you <laughs> have no budget for it, I would say understanding the political landscape and understanding press and like how to plug into that, whether it's op-eds or figuring out like which outlets to use and things like that is essential to this work. Um, And using them really helps amplify our message. And they're also really great at telling us nobody cares about this wonky issue or the way that we frame things. You know, people get very hyper-specific about programs and they're like, nobody cares. Uh, (laughs) Write it this way, appeal to the public, you know, and I think that's a really important piece of this. You don't have to have all these fancy consultants, but you do have to think through, you have to use the press. You have to think about how to lobby and how to engage with electeds in a different way. And they really helped educate us and add that quality to the campaign. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. So what's next for, for HSC and, and the Just Pay campaign? 
Yeah, we're going to do more and we're going to be bigger. Uh, I mean, that's a goal, I think, especially because, as I mentioned, having the money from the colas kind of move slowly um, and not be everything we wanted, which is part and parcel to, you know, advocacy in general. You know, nobody walks away perfectly happy is we need to address the real systems. There was a city request for proposal on RFP that came out a couple of years ago where it suggested that a social worker, which is a master's level degree, would have a salary of $35,000. That's almost anywhere across the country, not an acceptable wage. And it's certainly not an acceptable wage in New York City for a master's level position. And a COLA, even if we got a 5.4 this year, we're looking at an 8.5%, which is like the consumer price index for this year, like what inflation looked like in December. That's 5% of 35,000 is not enough to get to real equity. They should be making two to three times that much, honestly, in New York City. So we're really taking on legislatively and through like real systems reform, how do we force government to pay real parity on those salaries? So we're working at the state level on some legislation to think about how do we really capture who works in the human services sector and what they're paid and what they should be paid and really mandate government to pay that for the services that they provide. We should not be using taxpayer dollars to fund poverty level wages. And that's really the essence of what we're pushing for. So we'll continue to do our COLA advocacy because it's a system that works, you know, we know that mechanism, but really branching out to push for those real systems reforms so that we can achieve better parity in the long term. That's terrific. Going deeper with it. That's great. In the next season of the show in 2023, we're going to feature some foundations that are actually increasing the amount they pay in, you know, what's called quote unquote, non-program related, quote unquote, overhead costs that they allow grantees to utilize from program or project grants. So I wanted to ask you, because this is an issue both in government and foundations, this idea of indirect and direct costs that's sort of been made up um, and imposed on organizations, in terms of those concepts and, and practices, do you have thoughts for how government ought to be thinking about that and also foundations in the coming years? Yeah. I mean, I think agencies, other portfolio work is really around procurement reform and how to get government to be a better partner in, in how these contracts are structured and function. And indir- you know, indirect is certainly part and parcel to that because it's remarkably underfunded and the foundation world and even some of our, you know, nonprofit peers uh, across nationally have really created this myth of like low overhead slash indirect being better that like all money should go to programs. And that's just so devoid from reality of, you know, what it takes to run an organization. Uh, you know, everyone wants to pay for the kid to eat, but no one wants to pay for the gas to get the meal there. No one wants to pay for the lights to be on. Um, and so this kind of taking on of indirect, I think is a really important part because a lot of the advocacy that I just mentioned does not happen in the programmatic part of a nonprofit, right? Like they need a policy person, they need a communications person, they need, you know, a VP of programs, like they need those positions in order to advocate effectively for change. And also just to do the, you know, if you're not an advocate, you do want someone to care for those taxpayer dollars. So you need a good accountant and you need a good, you know, CFO and you need good auditors. And like, you don't get that if you don't pay for any of it. And we've seen, you know, in New York, at least a lot of government contracts and certainly philanthropy as well. Like they want to cap overhead or indirect at 10%, which is ridiculous because in the private industry, most businesses we see 50% or more is goes to overhead. Um, and so I think it's really important. New York City made important strides. Uh, they have uh, what's called the indirect cost rate initiative, 
which mirrors in some ways the federal where you can get like an individual rate for your indirect. So an organization can go through an application process to prove that they have an individual indirect rate and then claim that on their contracts, which is a huge first step. I think it's definitely something other localities should look at. And it's not without its own challenges. <laughs> um, we still need to make sure it gets funded, that we're not asking providers just move money around. Um, and so that will be continue to be our struggle is to make sure that it's accepted and funded on contracts. But it's certainly a, a huge step in the right direction. And I would just say that, you know, for both foundations and government who expect and demand outcomes, metrics, good reporting, solid audits, you don't get that when you pay people 10% or less for those costs. It's an absolute absurd position to expect organizations to do hundreds of individual program audits a year to sign these 300 page contracts to compete, you know, to some of these foundation reports look just as bad (laughs) as government ones. And then to be like, and by the way, keep your overhead really low because then there's no staff to do all of the work and mandated reporting that, that they want. So certainly they should be paying for indirect. And I think to your point, it's not indirect. It's all program. Everything that organizations do is to benefit the communities that they serve. And the back office functions are just as important to make sure that people get those services. Absolutely. And for folks who are listening, who are interested in the story of these indirect costs in New York City, in season two, episode 12, we had on Jennifer Geiling, who was at that time with the mayor's office on contract services, the city of New York under um, the previous administration. And I know that you all interacted with with that office as part of that story. So we're not going to go into it further here. But if people do want to want to learn more about that, you can check out uh, season two, episode 12. Great. And I would say it's a really important initiative and uh, grateful to the city and to Jennifer for her leadership in that area. You know, we've lived with the manual now for three years. So, of course, we've there are things that we would change about it and, and things we want to see. And unfortunately, initially it wasn't, did not come with new funding, but we were successfully like advocated for that. But I do think that's something nonprofits across the country are are looking into themselves. The New York City model is a really good, solid starting point. Uh, Maybe we can get a link for that, for something related to that manual on overhead and, and all of that and put it in the show notes for folks to look at that as a model. And I have heard that folks in California were looking to the New York City effort as a model. So I hope that continues as well. So based on the successes you've had as, as the Just Pay campaign, uh, anything you want to kind of wrap up and say to nonprofit workers, to nonprofit EDs, to nonprofit associations around the country uh, about how to improve workplace conditions for nonprofit workers? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think coming out of COVID, I don't think I'm alone in saying that people are really tired and really stressed out. Um, I think that's a easy national trend, not just a nonprofit trends. You know, we're certainly seeing people who are frustrated and tired and it's been a long going on three years and the nonprofit sector is more important than ever. As we look at coming out of COVID, but you know, in New York, there's asylum seekers who are here now um, in mass and, and we're happy to welcome them and they require a lot of services. As we think about maybe an economic downturn, maybe a self-prescribed economic downturn. <laughs> We've all just decided there's going to be one, so there will be one. But you know, whether it's real or, or imagined, it's certainly coming. And nonprofits make New York work. And I'm sure that's true in many other communities. We serve people from all types of walks of life. And I think the pandemic laid that bare more than anything else. You know, we had 
seniors who certainly had plenty of funding, but were isolated for different reasons who needed services. And we're all one crisis away uh, from needing human services. Really, what the sector does is in spite of the challenges that they face. As I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the system is functioning as designed. We're supposed to be paid last. Our workers are underfunded intentionally. And yet, as nonprofit leaders, you are between a rock and a hard place. If you turn back those contracts and say, we're not working, and it doesn't have to be government, it can be foundations as well. If you say, I'm not going to do this work anymore, you lay people off and you don't serve your community. And if you take this contract, you are participating in a racist capitalist system um, that is designed to keep you from being as successful as you could be. And so I think, you know, joining coalitions, being part of a movement to say, you know, we don't have to operate in this way, but no one provider can make that decision. It's an impossible decision to make. And so what we're trying to do is real movement building. It's not going to happen in one year. It's not going to happen with one budget to say that the sector has real political power and we're real change agents. And we're going to push back against these really harmful practices that are institutionalized and purposeful to keep our communities from being successful. And I think that's really the message of what we're trying to put out long term and pivot away from like, we just need to fix the edges to like, we need to really dismantle the system, but we need to dismantle the system while working in it (laughs) because we can't stop because then our communities suffer more. And so I think the message is really to human services workers, we do value you and you're worth so much more than we're able to give. And we're going to do better by you, um, with you at our sides. And I think to nonprofit executives and leaders who are who are really struggling with this every day, joining coalitions and being part of movements locally, nationally, to really stand up is what it's going to take. Because there's not one provider who can do this on their own. And to my fellow nonprofit associations, I would say take risks for those who can't. And luckily, the mayor and his people have been great. So I'm speaking of government, you know, fictional government people. If they didn't like HSC and didn't want to work with us anymore, they would work with someone else. And okay, so we're pushed out. You know, if we fail at our rally and no one wants to join us anymore, okay, fine. Like services will still go on. And so it's really up to us to take risks on behalf of the organizations who don't have the resources or the capital to take those risks. So I think, you know, nonprofit associations and advocates have to be a little braver and bolder in the way that they tackle these issues um, on behalf of the communities that we serve and claim to support and represent. Uh, And I think that's really the biggest takeaway and something that we're trying to do at HSC. Well, thank you. Thank you for your work and the work of your colleagues and all those folks who came out to the rallies and have kept the pressure on. And congratulations on your successes of the Just Pay campaign. Where can people find info on HSC and Just Pay? Well, first, thank you for having me. Really appreciate this conversation. Um, and we're happy to connect with local leaders across the country uh, who are trying to do this work and, and share what we've learned as we join up to create a larger movement. And you can find us at humanservicescouncil.org, which has all the information about the Just Pay campaign. But if you're interested in just the campaign, you can also go to justpayny.org to find more and all of our social media and stuff is, is on there as well. Michelle Jackson, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to the Fund the People podcast, where we help you cook up nutritious and delicious alternatives to the nonprofit starvation cycle by investing in the nonprofit workforce. On behalf of myself, Rusty Stahl, our gracious guests, and everyone who makes the show possible, we hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find links to the resources that were mentioned, guest bios, show notes, and the audio for this episode by visiting fundthepeople.org and clicking on podcast. Thank you for driving change in our communities, our country, and the world. Remember to keep your tank full, take care of yourself, and take care of one another.